We're delighted to have again fill the pulpit this evening Dr. Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. If I may make a point of personal privilege, I'm especially grateful for Dr. Master's ministry, not just this weekend, but in years past. Before moving to Florida, Ellie and I, and Annie as a one-month-old, worshipped at a small Orthodox Presbyterian church in Ambler, Pennsylvania, outside Philadelphia. We were such a small congregation that we could not pay our pastor or associate pastor living wages. They both had to work outside of, the, of their office of, of the sacred ministry. And so that put a, much of, of a strain on both pastors to fill the pulpit. So Dr. Master would fill the pulpit very many times, coming alongside this small church, this small struggling to survive church, and would preach the word of God to us many times in the years that we were there. So Dr. Master, thank you for your service behind the scenes to such small churches. And I guess now that you're down here, you're just checking on the McNeil family or following us or something, but thanks for coming down and we're eager to hear the preaching the word again. Well, we have very fond memories of those days at Cornerstone as well. Thank you uh, to all of you for the warm welcome you've extended to us this weekend. I don't know if I did this yesterday or not, but I do bring greetings from Greenville Seminary um, and from our congregation, which is Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, South Carolina. I know there are a number of connections there between that, that congregation and this one, but I want to thank you on behalf of Elizabeth and I just for how uh, graciously, you have treated us uh, during our few short days here with you. Well, let's look to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look to his word. Oh, our God, we do thank you for the glorious good news of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the free offer of salvation that he extends to all who would come to him. We confess this evening that we are sinners, that we are weak, and yet you say that you know our frame, that we are but dust. Oh, we are poor and needy, and we're in need in particular tonight of the teaching of your word. And so we ask that by your Spirit, for the glory of your Son and for the good of your people, you might see fit to visit us and to Minister to us by your Spirit through your Word. Convict us of sin. Train us in righteousness. Thoroughly equip us for every good work. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 12 and we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading 1 Kings 12 beginning in verse 25 and then going through verse 33 if you're reading along, or if you're just listening to this, please bear in mind as you read that this is the Word of God. 1 Kings 12, beginning in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. 
And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month and the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Please be seated. When we think of the great events of the Protestant Reformation, we often rightly think of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. That great doctrine that Martin Luther articulated with such clarity of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to those who come to him in faith, faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone. And yet when John Calvin, a slightly later reformer than Luther, when John Calvin was asked to articulate the most significant aspects of the Reformation, here is what he said in in his little work on the necessity of reforming the church. He said this, if it be inquired then by what things chiefly the Christian religion has a standing existence among us and maintains its truth, it will be found that the following two not only occupy the principal place, but comprehend under them all the other parts and consequently the whole substance of Christianity. And here are the two principal parts. A knowledge first of the mode in which God is to be duly worshipped. And secondly, the source from which salvation is to be obtained. For Calvin and for many of the other reformers, if you had asked them what was the Reformation all about, well, of course, they would have talked about justification by faith alone, about these great truths, about the source from which salvation is to be obtained. But Calvin makes it clear that there was another pillar of the Reformation, and he actually places it first, and that's this, the mode in which God is to be duly worshipped. Now that has direct bearing on the text in front of us because this text, this text in 1 Kings 12 is about nothing less than the mode in which God is to be duly worshipped. And I want to set the context of this text just a little bit by trying to give you some sense of the significance of how we approach God in worship in the Bible. Actually, we could start all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. You remember in Genesis chapter 4, after the fall of Adam and Eve, we're introduced to Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's two sons. 
And what's at issue between Cain and Abel to begin with is just this, the mode in which God is to be worshipped. Because what does the text tell us? It tells us that both of them brought an offering to the Lord to worship Him as their Creator. But, but, but Cain's offering was not acceptable to the Lord, while Abel's offering was. And that, of course, provoked great jealousy in Cain's heart, and eventually Cain goes so far as to murder his own brother, even after being warned directly by the Lord that he not give sin a foothold in his life. And yet the precipitating event uh, that, that began this whole spiral in Cain's heart was the fact that, that Cain didn't worship God as God ought to be worshipped. And, and Abel did. We could go on a little bit in the Old Testament and look at the introduction of the law where God gives very clear instructions. It's such a gracious thing that God gives such clarity to his people in the law handed down to Moses on Mount Sinai. And you remember in the book of Exodus after the law is handed down and the people of course are are worshiping and engaged in idolatrous worship when the law is handed down and they're judged for that and Moses has to intercede for them. But eventually as As the book of Exodus progresses, we see the laws are given for how God is to be worshipped, in particular in the tabernacle. And as you read through the book of Exodus, you see as you approach the end of the book that the tabernacle is constructed by the people according to God's direction, according to God's instructions. And, and, And in one of the climactic moments, perhaps the climactic moment of the entire book of Exodus, we see at the end God's visible presence come down into the camp of the people, down into that tent of meeting, that tabernacle. And and it's a day of rejoicing for the people. Because now God is in their midst visibly, and they have been told explicitly how they are to approach Him in worship. And all of them, all those in the camp, can approach God with thanksgiving, can approach God in spite of their sin, can approach God with the sacrifices that He demanded according to His commands. Do you remember what happened on day one of the tabernacle? Opening day, as it were, of this tent of meeting. You remember it's recorded for us in Leviticus chapter 10. On the first day, this day of rejoicing, what we see is Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, go into the holy place and the text tells us they offered strange fire before the Lord. And they're killed instantly by God. And not only are they killed by God, but God says to Moses and Aaron, don't even mourn their death. Because they were commanded about the way they were to worship me. And we don't even know what their violation was, but, but somehow they violated the command of God. How you worship God is highly significant. You remember in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, that second commandment that, that details how God is to be worshipped and how God is not to be worshipped. In that case, it refers specifically to images, but, but it extends beyond that to any, any inventions of man. God is to be worshipped in the way He says He is to be worshipped. And if you move further in your Old Testament, 
you find that again and again the prophets are condemning the people and they're condemning the people because of their false worship. Either they are coming and going through the motions of worship but their heart is not right with the Lord or they're actually violating the commands of God in their worship. And again, the prophets condemn them because worship is serious business in the Bible. It's serious business, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. You remember when Jesus confronts that woman at the well, one of the ways in which he exposes her sin and her ignorance is by engaging her in a discussion about biblical worship. And then we read at the beginning of the book of Acts, right at the outset of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the apostles, we read about Ananias and Sapphira who engage in worship, but they are engaging in worship simply for show. And there's all kinds of deception behind the offering that they bring. And once again, what the Lord does there is exactly what he did in the case of Nadab and Abihu. He strikes them dead immediately for their sin. Reminding us again that worship matters to the Lord. And so we reach these wonderful texts in the book of Hebrews where it describes for us the ministry of Christ and then tells us that we have to worship God with reverence and awe given what Christ has done for us. You know, it's interesting because the culture at large, our broader culture, understands that worship is important as well. Only, unfortunately, the broader culture and even the broader church looks at worship from an entirely different perspective. The Bible's perspective is simply this. You have to worship God the way God tells you to worship Him. And and you're not free to invent ways of worshiping Him. Our culture, though, understands worship as something to draw people in. One very popular writer on church growth says, my opinion for many young people choosing a church Worship leaders have become a more important factor than preachers. And then he goes on to describe what makes a good worship leader. He says, on a foundation of familiarity, throw in something different. Make sure that your prayers appear to be heartfelt. Look for the people, he says, who touch the heart of God with their prayer. Look for people who pray like God's best friend. And then he says, you need to find the right time to worship. Because you need to find a time that's convenient for other people. Well, that brings us to this text, which is all about the mode in which God is to be worshipped. Now, I want to give a little background on Jeroboam, who's introduced here in verse 25. If you're not familiar with the story of Jeroboam, Jeroboam was one of the servants of Solomon, and he fled to Egypt and then became a, an advisor to Solomon's son Rehoboam when Rehoboam was anointed as king. And Rehoboam was a very wicked king, a very unwise king. And Rehoboam's decisions eventually led to the division of the kingdom. And Jeroboam, to his credit, gave Rehoboam fairly sound advice, at least more sound advice than anyone else in Rehoboam's circle was giving him. But Rehoboam ignored Jeroboam's advice. And so Jeroboam flees to the northern 
part of the kingdom. And that's where we pick up here in verse 25. It says that Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And then he went out from there, and he built Penuel. Then Jeroboam has a thought, and the text is very clear. It's, it's, he said something in his heart. And what he said in his heart, what he, what he decided as he looked at the situation was this, that the kingdom was divided because of Rehoboam, but there was a, a problem here because what he knew is that Rehoboam, it being in the southern part of the kingdom, in the kingdom of what would be called Judah, controlled the city of Jerusalem. And so because Rehoboam controlled the city of Jerusalem, Jeroboam thought to himself, Rehoboam has an advantage here because the people need to go to Jerusalem to worship God. That's outlined very clearly in the book of Deuteronomy. And because they have to go to this central city of Jerusalem in order to worship God, when they go to that city, Rehoboam will win their hearts back over. And he knows that Rehoboam is a wicked Man, And so here's what he says in his heart, verse 27, if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And then, of course, there is an element of self-interest in Jeroboam's reasoning because he says, then they'll, they'll kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Well, because of this political reasoning, what does Jeroboam decide to do? Well, I want to outline for you the steps that Jeroboam takes in making the decision he makes. Uh, First, we read in verse 28 that Jeroboam decided to take counsel from his advisors and from the people around him. Look at the beginning of verse 28, so the king took counsel counsel. Now, in fact, in many ways, this might appear to be a positive sign. After all, what Rehoboam had done wrong, or one of the things that Rehoboam had done wrong, was he didn't listen to wise counsel. And here's Jeroboam, and Jeroboam is is being much wiser than Rehoboam, at least on the surface. Jeroboam is taking counsel with other people. We know from the Proverbs that in a multitude of counselors, there is much wisdom. So there's a, a superficial kind of wisdom to Jeroboam's tactics here. He sees a problem, he analyzes it, he realizes how bad a king Rehoboam is, and he speaks with his counselors, and he's going to take their advice. Not only does he seek advice, but it says that he made two calves of gold. In other words, what Jeroboam did here is he spent a good amount of money in order to solve this problem. This wasn't just worship that appealed to the best advice of those around him. This was worship that in some ways was costly to Jeroboam. He had to make these calves of gold. Look at what he says. He, he also takes into account the convenience of the people who served him. He said to the people, verse 28, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, we might say this, if we were going to make a positive case for what Jeroboam is doing, we might say, well, here, this is good leadership. He's listened to the right people. He's spent a lot of money on this, and he's, 
He's interested in what makes it convenient for all the worshipers. He wants to know what makes it easiest for them, and he has their, has their interests in mind. You don't need to go up to Jerusalem anymore. You can simply go to your local place of worship. As a matter of fact, what Jeroboam does in picking the particular cities that he picks, you remember he picks Bethel uh, first, and, and, and we see that this has historic ties to the, 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 the spiritual uh, history uh, of these people. He set one up in Bethel, it tells us, in verse 29. We see that Abraham and Jacob went through Bethel. And, and we look at the other city, the city of Dan, which is recorded for us in verse 29 as well. Well, Moses' grandson actually presided as a priest there in Dan. That's recorded for us in Judges 17 and 18. So, so he had an eye on tradition. Remember our church growth experts said you want to make sure there's a foundation of familiarity, a foundation of tradition, and you just tweak it a little bit. You build upon it a little bit. Well, that's exactly what Jeroboam is doing here. He takes counsel, he spends money, he thinks of the needs of his people, or at least pitches it that way, and he finds these cities that have some kind of spiritual connection with the people's history. This was, we might say, historic worship. And we see, too, in verse 28, that he, he tries to tie it in with Scripture. You may recognize the Scripture that he uses. He said to the people, you've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. And then here's the quotation. It's a quotation from the book of Exodus, by the way. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Well, on first glance, you might say he's tying it in. He's tying this worship in with the people's testimony of salvation. Only if you look a little more closely, you realize that the passage that he's quoting from is spoken by none other than Aaron in Exodus when he introduces the golden calf to the people of Israel. Remember what Aaron said when the golden calf emerged from the fire? Here, here's your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And that's what Jeroboam says here. He uses the Bible, but of course he's twisting the Scriptures to his own ends. Well, how do the people respond? Well, the people respond, uh, they, they, they love this worship. Uh, look at what it says uh, in verse 32. The people, uh, uh, Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. And he did the same in Bethel, and he placed priests in Bethel at the high places that he had made. He, he made not only, he not only spent money on the calves themselves, but he made costly sacrifices and presented these feasts to the people. And if you look carefully at the calendar, you see that the calendar that he establishes is, is close. It's not the same, but it's, it's close to the calendar that's established by the Lord. And what's Jeroboam doing? Well, he's taking what the Lord had commanded, and he's, and, he's, and he's sort of just moving it slightly to make it a little more convenient for all the people who are worshiping. And what it says in verse 33 is that they enjoyed warm fellowship and feasting together. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people. Now, what do we see in all of this? Well, we see that even though there are some ways in which Jeroboam appears to be employing biblical reasoning 
and appears to be acknowledging the history of Israel and appears to be using the Bible. In fact, what Jeroboam is doing is sin. It's an abomination to the Lord. Did you notice that phrase that was used at the beginning of this text and at the end? In verse 26, it says, Jeroboam said in his heart. And then we see something similar at the end in verse 33. It says, this was the day that he had devised from his own heart. You know, I'm sure if you had pulled Jeroboam aside or one of Jeroboam's defenders aside and said, Jeroboam, what are you doing? Violating the worship of the Lord. He would have said, you don't understand. This is, this is from my heart. This is heartfelt worship. Isn't that what it's all about? Heartfelt worship of the Lord? Sacrificial worship of the Lord? Convenient worship of the Lord. Well, no, the text tells us that what he did, what he did was a vile sin against the Lord. We can learn a number of things, I think, from the reasons that are given in this text for Jeroboam's violation. We can see, first of all, that while it does come from his own heart, and no doubt he would have used that as a defense, the reality is this, that Jeroboam was concerned principally with his own power. And concern for power will always corrupt the true worship of God. Why? Because what is it that you have primarily in mind? What is the real end of your worship? Well, the real end of your worship is accumulating some kind of authority for yourself. It's not pleasing the Lord or doing things according to His commands. We see as well that concern for convenience corrupts worship. Jeroboam's choice of the location, his choice of the priestly qualifications, remember the text tells us he didn't use the Levites, he he had this democratizing view of the priesthood, and he would, he, would, he would take anyone, anyone who wanted to be a priest, anyone that he thought was qualified to be a priest. But his choice of location and of priestly qualifications and even of the worship calendar itself was, was based upon convenience. It was driven by convenience, and that corrupts worship. We see as well that interest in this kind of creative addition from the heart corrupts worship too. Jeroboam uses God's Word only once, and when he uses it that one time, he uses it inappropriately. Anyone who knew their Bibles should have been able to immediately see what Jeroboam was doing and immediately identify the misuse of Scripture in this whole enterprise. And you notice too how Jeroboam thinks all this up for himself. I mentioned already this this notion of coming from his own heart, but one commentator points out this, that in verses 31 through 33, you can't see all of these instances in the English text, but in verses 31 through 33, the Hebrew verb made is used eight times. He made houses. He made priests. He made a festival. He went up to the altar and, and did something. He, there were calves which he had made, high places he had made, an altar he had made, a festival he had made. At the end of the day, this was ultimately Jeroboam's own doing. It was the work of his hands. It wasn't from the Lord at all. Well, what are the consequences of Jeroboam's act of creativity in worship. 
Well, the most important thing that we see, and we see this throughout the rest of First and Second Kings, is that God is displeased with it. That God himself doesn't accept the worship of these people. In fact, he abhors the worship of these people. Some of them may have been well-intentioned. Jeroboam might have been able to make a convincing case. But the reality is, at the end of the day, God is not pleased. More than that, we see in the book of Kings takes great pains to show us this, that Jeroboam's act of misplaced worship causes great division among the people of God. The split had already happened under Rehoboam, but it is, it is, this simply adds fuel to the fire. And we don't see any real unity between the, the northern kingdom, those people of God up there, and the southern kingdom, the people of God down in the south in Judah. But you know one of the most significant consequences of all of this, and it's mentioned over and over and over again in 1 Kings and then in 2 Kings, to the point where you almost, if you're reading through these books, almost begin to pass over it and you miss that it's being said again and again and again. What's said over and over again, what we're reminded of from this text, is the multi-generational effect that it had on everyone who followed Jeroboam. It's mentioned in 1 Kings 14, in 1 Kings 15, in 1 Kings 16, in 1 Kings 21, 1 Kings 22, 2 Kings 3, 2 Kings 10, 2 Kings 13, 2 Kings 15, 2 Kings 17. In, in many cases, multiple times in each of those chapters that I've, lift, that I've listed. They followed after the sin of their father, Jeroboam. It's a reminder for us of the significance of following God in worship. You want your worship to be acceptable to God, you follow His Word. And you want your children not to be led astray Will you worship according to His Word. I know right now we're in an election season and one of the things that exercises us about these elections is we often say something like, well, I'm not so concerned about myself and the direction things are going, but, but I am concerned about my children and I am concerned about my grandchildren. And that's an understandable sentiment, but according to the record in First and Second Kings, uh, the most damaging thing that we can do to the generations that follow is to pervert the worship of God, to lead them astray into false worship, not according to the Word of God. You know, when our catechism speaks of the worship of God, the right worship of God, it says things like this about worshiping God on the day that He had, has given us for worship. Satan with his instruments labors much to blot out the glory and even the memory of this day, to bring in all irreligion and impiety. And that's what we see happen in the northern kingdom. In the northern kingdom, when the Bible traces all the sin, all the wickedness, all the idolatry, and ultimately, all the judgment that comes down on these people, it consistently traces it back to this moment when Jeroboam, out of his own heart, in the overflow of his concern, 
puts together these golden calves. But I want to tell you this. The Bible doesn't leave us grasping in the dark. There is a far better way. A far better way to determine how it is that we're to worship God. We don't look to our own hearts. We don't look to our own desires. No, what we look to is the Word of God. John Calvin, whom I quoted at the beginning as saying that worship played a primary role in the Reformation, said this, only when we follow what God has commanded us do we truly worship Him and render obedience to His Word. Elsewhere, Calvin speaks of the fact that we all are drawn to the kind of worship that, that, we, uh, that we want. He says people think that it is sufficient sanction to worship God in the way they want just because they want to do it. No, but we need to instead look to the Word of God. He says every addition to God's Word, especially in this matter, is a lie. Word-centered worship. You see, God has taught us in His Word how to approach Him in worship. It's a gracious thing. We'd be in the dark without it. We wouldn't really know how to render to God appropriate thanks, how to bring our requests to Him, how to gather together with others in His name and worship Him as He teaches us to. We wouldn't know unless He'd revealed Himself, but He has revealed Himself to us in His Word, and we need to look to the Word of God to see what it is that God commands. And that's the question we need to be asking, not not the question, what do I want, but the question, what does God Himself command? He's the one who makes the rules. After all, we're worshiping Him. The focus ought to be on Him. And ultimately, when we, when we ask that question of how it is that God demands to be worshipped, what we see in the New Testament very clearly is that we worship God in and through the work of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Scriptures tell us what Christ has done as our high priest. Let me read you a little excerpt from the book of Hebrews. The writer says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then the writer to Hebrews says, we have confident access to God by the new and living way through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have a great and sympathetic high priest to whom we offer our requests and to whom we present our worship to God. In fact, the writer to Hebrews goes so far as to say, we have confidence to enter the holy places, those places in the tabernacle that could only be entered once a year by one man, and that with blood. We as Christians have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. I wonder if you were asked what it means to be a Christian, if at least part of your answer would be, Oh, I have confident access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
I can approach him in worship and in prayer with assurance, not because of anything in myself, but but because of the Lord Jesus Christ, my great high priest, who has offered a once-for-all sacrifice on my behalf. I tell you that if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting in him as your savior, if you're not united to him through faith, then the Bible says you, you cannot have this kind of confident access to God. There's, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. No longer do we go through any kind of human mediator to get to God. We go through the, our, our, our great and perfect high priest, the man Jesus Christ, the God-man. And what the writer to Hebrews goes on to say is because we have this confidence coming to God based on what His Word teaches us in the mode that His Word teaches us, coming to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, what's the first command that the writer to Hebrews gives after stating all this? Well, in light of this, draw near to God. That phrase draw near, that command to draw near, that description of drawing near is actually taken from the book of Leviticus where it's repeated over and over again. The priest is to draw near, the worshiper is to draw near and give his sacrifice to the priest who then is to draw near. And the writer to Hebrews uses this over and over again, not least in Hebrews 10 when he tells us to draw near to God in worship, but you remember what he says in Hebrews chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you love to draw near to God in prayer? Do you recognize the great privileges that are yours? God's revealed how to draw near to him. He's commanded you and invited you to draw near to him. You recognize what a great blessing that is to draw near to Him privately in prayer and publicly in prayer and together with all God's people to worship Him. What a glorious blessing that is. And so when we look at examples like this in 1 Kings 12 where out of the imagination of the heart, worship is corrupted. We can't help but be drawn to the true worship that's outlined for us in the New Testament by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that command that we're given in Hebrews, that glorious command that in Christ we can actually fulfill. Therefore, he says, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. And he goes on to remind us of how high the stakes are. Calvin knew the stakes were this high. Bible makes it clear that the stakes are this high. Here's how the writer to Hebrews puts it. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the clarity you give us in your word. What a privilege it is to worship you. May we never lose sight of this great privilege. And may we look to your word for its teaching and to Christ, our mediator and high priest, our sympathetic high priest, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, whoever lives to intercede for us. So, what a glorious Savior he is. 
What a perfect mediator. Father, as we reflect on these things, may the remainder of our time approaching you in worship be acceptable in your sight based upon the merits of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.